Okay, well this uh, is a bit of a momentum changer, isn't it? To take two nights off and uh, try to uh, pick up again. I um, decided to just continue with the um, uh, I'm not going to be able to talk with that mouse there. <laughs> I decided to just continue uh, on the schedule and um, uh, needless to say, um, having found out, uh, let's see, today is Thursday, what well, was it, Tuesday afternoon that we weren't having services that evening. I had already had this session prepared at that point, and so, um, yeah, it seems right to just kind of continue in that direction. <clears throat> this past June in Washington, D.C., um, they have an annual spelling bee. It's called the Scripps National Spelling Bee. And it's for middle schoolers. So that would be like from age 12 to 14 approximately. And this year, it was, uh, it's always a very competitive thing. And middle schoolers come from all over the United States. This year, this past year in 2018, there were over 500 spellers there. And it was more competitive or as much competitive as had ever before. And in the 17th round, went on for hours. In the 17th round, a 14-year-old boy from Texas correctly spelled the word koinonia. Koinonia. Spelled pretty much like it sounds, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. And he won the, uh, the B as a as a result of spelling that word correctly. The word koinonia is a noun. It is a Greek word. And interestingly, it is a biblical word. The speller from Texas was actually a, an Indian. Uh, his parents immigrated to the United States from India and were Christians. And when he was given the word, he broke out in a smile. And uh, you could tell he had it, uh, yeah. I just took the opportunity to, the last couple of days to, um, to look at that. A Christian word, a Bible word, a Greek word. It means an intimate spiritual or Christian communion. The King James Version Greek lexicon gives this definition that I have there. Fellowship, association, community, communion, and so on. In the New Testament, every time the word communion is used, it is the word koinonia. Twenty times in the New Testament, the word koinonia is used. And it's twelve times the word fellowship is translated from the word, the Greek word koinonia. There is also the words communicate, communication, contribution, and distribution. Twice here in our subject, our material here in uh, 1 Corinthians, the word koinonia comes up. The first one that we want to look at is, uh, is 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. 
You can open your Bibles there and follow as I read this passage here. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the koinonia of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion, koinonia, of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And to do a word study on these verses, you will find that these verses are actually something very intimate, something very intimately relational is going on here. Now, in a marriage, the, New, the King James Version uses the term one flesh to describe the marital union. And that is actually the same description that is used here in the communion service with Jesus, of course. Koinonia. We are one body. Okay, there is one bread and one body, and we are partakers of that one bread. The blood of Christ, the body of Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 11, verse, verses 17 to 34, and I'm just going to read these. This is uh, probably most of our text here uh, tonight, and uh, then we'll move on. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before another his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of, the, of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would 
judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Now, sometimes when we get into discussions of communion and so on, we could almost feel sometimes that we are the first generation that has struggled with this subject. What is communion? And what is it for? What does it symbolize? How is it to be carried out? And what is, what is an unworthy manner? And those sorts of things. We are not nearly the first generation. In fact, this struggle with communion has continued for hundreds of years. Just in our, in our own history, our story, we're just about at the 500-year threshold of Anabaptism. And Felix Mons and Ulrich Swingley and all of them had elongated discussions on communion. It was one of the things that birthed the Anabaptist movement. Discussions and disagreements on communion. How, how communion is to be fleshed out. Well, one of the things that comes to my mind when I think of communion and I want to answer and understand better, what was the first communion like? What was the first communion like? Now you have to go back into the Gospels to do this in the upper room. And let me just clarify at the beginning here, what Jesus and the disciples practiced in the upper room was not communion like we practice it. To call it communion is actually not even, it's barely, it's barely accurate. It's barely, it's barely correct. Because what Jesus and the disciples practiced in the upper room was Passover. And it was actually a very typical Passover. We can see that from the text in the Gospels. Jesus, the upper room, and the disciples. Well, you can see, you can follow in the story there in the gospel. First of all, there was lots of preparation that, were, that went on ahead of time. Before the Passover was held, um, in the month uh, Nisan, remember um, there were four spring feasts by the Jewish calendar, and there were three that collided in one week. So it was a very active week. There were um, the Exodus and Leviticus stories call them holidays or Sabbaths. It actually means holidays where there was no servile work being done on, on several of these days. Plus you had the weekly Sabbath. So there was about four days in that Passover week where there was no servile work being done. There were holidays. Besides that, Passover was also the one, one of the week or one of the feasts where all the Jewish men were considered required, at least if, they was, if it was possible for them to present themselves to the Lord. And they did that in the Jewish temple or tabernacle, especially at Jesus' time. So Jerusalem was completely flooded with people. There was probably several million people in the, 
in the area of Jerusalem, and it would be about the distance from intercourse to burden hand, um, was about the scope or, uh, of the city of Jerusalem. And if you can think of about, yeah, three to four million people in that area, um, that's about like it was how it was the week of, of uh, the Passover, Jesus' final week here on earth. So there was, there was preparation that took place ahead of time. And some of those uh, definitions and, and some of that is given. Lots of preparation. And then there were um, multiple rounds of wine or grape juice. Obviously, in our setting, we do one, and I'm fine with that. But in the Passover meal, there is four distinct cups, maybe a fifth. And I want to talk to you about those. So the first one was the, the cup of sanctification. And they would get to their place. Um, typically, it was just uh, the, the Passover service. The Passover ceremony to this day is mostly just the family. It is not uh, Jews to this. Yeah, Jews normally don't meet in some large fire hall or shady maple and celebrate the Passover meal all in one big bunch. It's, a, it's much more intimate than that. And it's generally only family that's invited to the Passover meal. And that's pretty much how it was with Jesus. Jesus and his 12 disciples. So the first cup when they got there, they were served the cup of sanctification. And that was usually followed by hand washing and or feet washing by one of the servants. And that seems to have been followed. That practice seems to have been followed. But Jesus turned that on its head and he as the host washed the feet. And of course, that was considered completely out of ordinary, completely out of place by the disciples. And you can see their reaction there, especially Peter's. So after the feet washing, there was an, um, an appetizer that was served. It was usually some sort of vegetable that was dipped in salt water. And I should tell you that all of these things in the Passover... And Floyd, I think you've probably been present at a Passover, am I right? I think so. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> How many others of you have been part, have been at a Jewish uh, Passover service? Several of you. Fanny, you've been there. Are you raising your hand? Okay. Several others have been, you, you've been part of a Jewish, I'll, I might pick on your brains here a little bit later and you can correct me where I'm uh, yeah, not correct on something. But the Jewish Passover service is full of imagery. And there's all kinds of things going on. Ceremonies among the ceremonies and that sort of thing. So part of the reason they do the saltwater thing or the bitter herbs is a reminder of the tears of the Jewish people. And they were, of course, it started back in, the, the, in Egypt. Passover was the first Passover was part of the, was the last of the ten plagues. <clears throat> and as always, the Passover service stretches on for hours. It's not some hurried event like our communion where we, you know, do it and get it over with and then we're on our way. But the Jewish Passover stretches on for hours. It can go and late into the night, starting at sundown. Well, after the appetizer, 
Um, there's another round of grape juice or wine, and this one is called the cup of judgment, sometimes referred to as the cup of plagues or the cup of deliverance. And this is especially marking the history of the deliverance from Egypt. You see, it was deliverance, depending which side you were on, and it was judgment, again, depending which side you were on. So it's sort of simultaneous. The cup of plagues is sometimes what it's referred to. And especially during this time, there is usually reciting of scriptures and singing of, of songs. There are mostly uh, uh, Jewish passages from the Psalms. Or um, uh, my understanding is that there are, they would have songs or recitals, recitals that uh, uh, have to do with the, um, with the deliverance from Egypt. And of course, they will also, more recently, they will also recite and tell some of their stories from the Holocaust. That's a kind of a newly introduced part of Passover for the Jews. Next, there is the Passover feast, which includes the eating of the lamb and the matzah, which is the unleavened bread. And I'm told that there's Again, lots of striking imagery on how they eat the matzahs and how the matzahs are broken and placed out of sight, wrapped in a napkin and that sort of thing. And it's not very hard for us as believers of Jesus to see how this is pointing to Christ. All of these, uh, all of these uh, images and all of these visuals are uh, very active in uh, pointing to Christ. So there would be the Passover feast. And along with one of the, an additional part of the uh, Passover feast was also the dipping of the, the unleavened bread or the matzah in bitter herbs. Again, we see that. And traditionally, this was started by the host and first of all given to the guest of honor, typically sitting, sitting immediately to the host's left. Now, in Jesus' case, in the upper room, almost all biblical scholars place Judas immediately to Jesus' left. And the Gospels, especially Mark, and, and uh, actually I think three of the Gospels record this, how that Jesus, in this part of the meal, called out Judas. And he confronted him about his impending betrayal right in front of all the other disciples. And it was a complete secret, Judas thought, known only by a few of the Jewish leaders and, of course, Judas. But Jesus called him out, gave him the sop, and Scripture makes it just as clear as could be that he gave the sop to Judas, and immediately after receiving the sop, Judas left. It says that he went out, and it was night. And Jewish scholars and preachers have correctly said that the night in Judas's heart at that point was darker than any other night that existed. And I think that's correct. Jesus said, what thou doest, do quickly. Now, I find that very interesting, especially in the light of, um, and we'll, maybe we'll come back to some of this a little later on, and Jesus' judgment on Judas at that point. It would be sort of like excommunicating a person in the middle of communion service. 
calling somebody to the carpet, calling somebody out, in the middle of communion, and excommunicating him. That is sort of what Jesus did. And we feel maybe a certain amount of um, sadness when somebody is withheld from communion for any reason. And it's often depicted as rejection and something that shouldn't happen. But, um, yeah, well, I, I think of that sometimes, how, G, how Judas was, like I said, called out right in front of the disciples and pretty much expelled or disfellowshipped in the middle of the, of the Passover meal. And again, let me also remind you of what I said about excommunication the other night. Is, should excommunication be an ordinance? Should it be considered an ordinance? Jesus, in the, in the upper room, had an actual, visual, literal ceremony that formalized something that had already taken place spiritually. Do you follow what I'm saying? It had already been a spiritual reality in Judas's heart and life, and Jesus made that um, actual by way of uh, a ceremony there in the Passover meal. Well, after the meal, then there was um, after the meal there was a um, a third cup of wine which was called the cup of redemption. And again, it's striking that Judas drank the cup of judgment and left before he drank the cup of redemption. And finally, at the very end of the ceremony, at the end of the Passover feast, at the end of the, just before everybody went their way, they had a final round of grape juice or wine, and that was called the cup of praise, also sometimes called the cup of acceptance. And I want you to, to look at a passage of Scripture in Mark 14. It's really interesting. It's something that I had never noticed before, but um, yeah, in my study I came across this. Jesus seemingly didn't drink that cup. Look at the words here. It says, He, Jesus, took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, that's Jesus, this is my blood in the new covenant which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until I drink of it in the new, it new in the kingdom of God. And it's almost as if Jesus didn't drink that cup. And that cup will still be future when it's drunk at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just a thought there. I, I can't necessarily prove that Jesus didn't drink it, but it does sort of sound like that happened. And also want to point out, when they had sung in him, it says in Mark and one of the other passages as well in the other Gospels, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And they were probably singing Psalm 115 to 118. It's a group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. And it's part of the Passover services to this day. Psalm 118 is the most frequently quoted Messianic psalm in the New Testament. There is, you can read down through there and you can just see one section, one verse after the next, one phrase after the next, and it's easy to see how Psalm 118 especially is prophetic and ties into uh, Jesus' 
suffering, and death. Now, usually at some point along the line, even Jews today have a fifth cup, and it's called the cup of Elijah. And this cup of Elijah is not junk. They, it's, it's, my understanding is that it's served, and they pour it out. And it's because the cup of Elijah speaks of a future. And it especially draws into uh, the picture how that communion is not all there is. There's still more coming. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's the consummation of all things. And I had to think of this tonight, uh, Dan, when you were showing your, um, your graph there. Um, the Jews actually do a much better job than Mennonites in portraying the whole story and seeing themselves as a piece or a, a portion of the greater story. Now, of course, they don't see Jesus, so they're missing the story. But they do, they do have, have that in their framework, and yeah, it is very interesting to, to think how they, uh, that is. Um, for those of you who have been at a Passover meal, um, I, would, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, what is the cup of Elijah, especially? Um, the cup speaking of the future, and how is that, how is that practiced? Uh, do you remember such an event or a, a cup of Elijah? I think often they have a, a, a place for Elijah at the table. Isn't that right? Where the host will actually go out and he'll open the door and he'll look left and look right and look all around to make sure that Elijah is not actually coming to that particular Passover meal. Am I right on that? We were never in a Passover setting in a Jewish home. We actually did this at Calvary Bible School one time. I see. <laughs> Joe Mullet. Yeah. Did I have the order sort of right, or? Yeah. Ellen and Ken, you were raising your hands. Were you at? Do you have anything you want to? I see. Were they Messianic Jews? Yeah. So that changes how how it's done, perhaps, or at least how it's carried out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fanny or Roman, do you have anything you want to say? Okay, that does change it. Yeah. Are there any comments from anyone else? Anything you want to point out um, about the first communion, as we call it? Well, part, the main reason that I chose to especially highlight that point is because I really think that our communion services should highlight those things. I think those should be common themes in our communion services. I think that's what communion is, is about. And if we can find a way to train ourselves to think of it in that way, it will take care of a lot of other 
stumbling points or yeah, issues that, that sometimes come up during communion time that, um, I don't know, I, they're probably valid, but yeah. Let's think of those themes as communion themes. <clears throat> so I've tried to show you and especially make a point what I believe communion is and should be. And I, I would love if you would remember this first part especially. But I'm going to move forward now and talk about um, some of the complexities of communion today. Um, I'm especially familiar with the complexities that we have here at Weavertown. And um, yeah, like I said, I find myself wondering just a bit sometimes if we, yeah, how well we do in our understanding of communion. Um, so moving forward here, some questions and, and also discussion points. The first thing that I wanna say the first point that I make, want to make here is that participation in communion is a doctrinal statement. It is not just something that we do by way of practice because it's practical or symbolic. It's not only that. It is much more a doctrinal statement than just some practical symbolic thing that we do. For instance, participating in communion and how we are prepared for communion, how we, the mindset that we are in is a very strong indication, number one, what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the sacrifice and what we believe about the atonement. It is also a very strong telling point in what we believe about the church and what church is for and what church is. So there's no doubt about it that the teaching of communion should and does have practical and symbolic points. It is also very doctrinal in nature. And perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps we can come back to that point if you want to talk more about that. It's a point that I'm still processing. Uh, I, I really didn't come, a, it was kind of a new thought to me when I started uh, preparing myself for, for this uh, week. And it, it's something that I... Um, I, I believe I've come to accept, and, and I, I want to learn more about that. When a person participates in communion, it is not just some motions that they're going through, but it's a, it's a public statement that is being made. <clears throat> now let's look here in 1 Corinthians 11, and this is a very telling account where Paul really, again, really gets after the Corinthians. I mean, he, he just pretty much cuts right to the chase. He rebukes the Corinthian church for making a mockery of communion, the communion service. And they, they, they escalated their yeah, malpractice of communion into something that made it, um, yeah, it, it was a mockery. And you can see that in verses 17 and following. At what one point Paul says, that's not even communion. That's not even the Lord's Supper. So Paul calls out for the, 
the, the church members at Corinth for having divisions. And I think that's especially interesting. Divisions and heresies among themselves when they came together to eat the Lord's Supper or to practice communion. Verse 20, especially, when ye come together in one place, that is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Even though they were going through the motions, they had so, yeah, it was so badly practiced that it was not even qualified to be called the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, when ye come together, therefore, I think that word therefore especially ties in the previous context, which talks about um, verses 16 and uh, 17, 18, and 19 especially um, talk about the heresies and the division that were in their midst. And actually, quite a few of the chapters prior to that, Paul points out the divisions and the heresies that were actually part of of, of the Corinthian church. Divisions and heresies. <clears throat> I would love to have you feedback into this, and I chose not to give some of my personal comments. I don't even have them in my notes here. And I'm just going to uh, open this up for some questions. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Question one is, what does it mean when it says unworthily? How can communion be participated in unworthily? And further, that person who takes part of the communion service unworthily shall be guilty of the blood and body of Christ. What? What do you think? What does that mean? I don't think I'm going to answer my own question. What does it mean to partake unworthily? And how can one be guilty? Say it again. I can give you some ideas. I'm not guaranteeing they're correct. Go ahead. I'd like to hear them. in an unworthy manner. Yeah. They were pigging out and getting drunk and all kinds Yeah. Selfishness. They came... Is that what you're thinking of? They came thinking about themselves. It seems that's what they They weren't thinking about the group. They weren't... Yeah, they weren't thinking about what's good for the group. They just came, they, they were just, yeah, they were just thinking about what was good for them. Some more ideas, Dan. That's about it? Okay. <laughs> People say that if you have sin in your life, then you shouldn't communion. But the thing is, there's nobody that doesn't have some sin in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. 
this puts a whole new light on the importance of uh, council meeting report for service. Preparation. Yes. Yeah. Not only as a service, but even individuals at home before we come. Yeah, that stood out to me even even in looking at the first com communion, the first or Jesus' last supper, the amount of preparation, thinking about all the work that the disciples or somebody put into that. I mean, there was, there was a lamb that needed to be butchered. It needed to be roasted or fried. Um, it needed to, the, the meal needed to be prepared. There was a lot of work that went into that. It didn't just show up. Somebody fixed it. And that preparation was done very intentionally to point to Christ. The house was thoroughly cleaned with all leaven. Yep, that upper room went through a thorough cleaning. Yeah. Preparation. Mm -hmm. and, and part of preparation is preparing us relationally with, with sure the divisions that they had in their group were just so far out of context it didn't at all project any kind of intimacy or um, unity of, of any kind verse 28 but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. I think that sort of goes along with some of the thoughts that were already mentioned. Um, if you have anything more to say on that, you can. Verse 29, but he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, here he says it a different way, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. What? Not discerning the Lord's body. To partake in communion in an unworthy way is to bring damnation to a person or brings damnation to a person. And especially, I was wondering, what does it mean not discerning the Lord's body? What do you think? Was that a question? <laughs> Say more. Yeah, I I think that's correct. The Lord's body is the church, right? Again, it has this idea of just thinking about what's good for me, not what's good for the group. What else should be said? Verse 30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep... Um, 
Yeah, I find that very fascinating. And just wonder what all is implied by that. And I know, like for Judas, I mean, I think that he was there for at least half the service, perhaps more than that. But he left before it was over. But his being there was not in his favor. It was not, it was not good for him to have been there. And did that have any contribution on his spiritual demise? His physical demise, I, I don't know. I, maybe that's making verse 30 walk on all fours. But in verse 31 to 34, then, he goes on and again comes back to this idea of judgment or judging each other or judging ourselves. Uh, that would have the same thought in verse 20, 28. talks about examining oneself. And again, just paraphrasing this in verse 31 if we would examine ourselves, if we would judge ourselves, I would use the word additionally there, properly. If we would properly evaluate ourselves, we wouldn't need to be judged by others. But the fact that there are times where we need to be judged by others, that chastening is actually chastening from the Lord. Have you ever thought of it in that way when somebody comes to confront you or to chasten you? Have you ever thought of it as something that's coming from the Lord? We should. We should. If indeed the Lord's body, as Ken implied, is the church, that body has a right to speak into our lives. One of the strong Anabaptist tenets is that God speaks to my brother and my brother or I hear from God, my brother hears from God, and we hear from each other. In other words, what is spoken to me through my brother has great weight and value. It's not just what I hear from God, like we hear so often today. God told me this, or God told me that. But we hear from each other in a collective sort of way. <clears throat> when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Now, I don't, again feel just really qualified to, to say how and what that looks like to tarry one for another, to wait. Um, yeah, I just find it very interesting. I have about one or two minutes here, and I would like to uh, talk about our practice of close communion. Now, there are numerous... Christian groups today that practice open communion. And what I mean by that is that anybody that's in the service that claims to be a Christian can go along to the communion service. Our tradition and our practice, along with quite a few other Christian groups, practice what is called close communion. That's at least a term that I prefer using, although if you prefer using the word closed communion, you can say that. I think Closed communion is maybe a little bit more uh, like the Catholic Church, where you have to be Catholic in order to go along to Eucharist, which is their word for communion. But in our settings, we, we, uh, we do have non-members that participate sometimes, especially, if, like we say, people that have made prior arrangement. And, yeah, I, I don't know that I can say that I just believe really, really strongly in one way or the other. I have come to really appreciate our 
approach or our tradition of close communion. I actually think that it's, it's um, I, in, in my interpretation, I think it's more in keeping with some of the things that's, that we talked about here this evening. Um, the highlighting of the group, um, people that we're intimate with and know, people that we have seen walk. Um, there's, there's two things that especially stand out to me when I think of arguments in favor or reasons in favor of close communion. And I've pointed them out here this evening. And one is the Passover service, the first communion. Jesus had lots of followers. I mean, at the feeding of the 5,000, it says there was 5,000 plus women and children. There could have easily been 15 or 20,000 people there. Jesus did not serve communion to all of those people. A little bit later on, he had, we know for sure that he had 70 disciples. Immediately after his death and resurrection in the upper room, I could possibly have been had the same upper room, there was 120. But Jesus, in the Last Supper, held communion with 12, the 12, or you could even be more specific and say 11. Why didn't he practice communion with those 120 or 70? I think it's, I think it's sort of instructive. And also the Jewish tradition, like I said, of, of meeting with the immediate family. Uh, occasionally, I think they, my understanding is they have some extended family. But generally, it's, it's the people that live in that house that practice or that are part of the, the celebration at Passover. And then... I guess further, again, I, I'm not insisting that I'm seeing the whole uh, thing, and I certainly don't want to say more than should be said or make it bigger than it should be. Um, Paul here talks about divisions and heresies, and we know for sure there's lots of denominations in our world today, and especially in the United States of America, lots of denominations. And my question is, all of those denominations represent at least some division. Somewhere there's going to be a point where, well, that's how denominations were formed. They started because of some disagreement that happened. Somewhere along the line, it created a new group. And yeah, how, how does that play into uh, Paul's instructions here and his chiding the Corinthians about divisions and heresies and that sort of thing? I, I personally feel that we... we I feel very comfortable with us practicing close communion. I think it's something that we can keep in-house and keep it with people that we know and walk among us. I just see it as a lot of safety. We have a common and mutual commitments that we enter into. And to me, it's sensible. I cannot point to a verse and a chapter where it clearly says that that's the only way or that is the way. But I, I've come to appreciate that, that we do it that way. We're already past uh, 35, so I guess uh, yeah, if you're in the pig pen, you might as well just you know, take a bath. So what else should be said? I kind of took the last word there, maybe. Anything you want to say as we, before we close? Well, my prayer is in all of these uh, subjects, the, the three that we've talked about here and the two that we were going to talk about, 
My prayer is just simply that God would help us to prove all things, like the Bible says, and hold fast those things which are good.